This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 65 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. We would like to thank our sponsors, Equestrian Collections and Kentucky Performance Products. Venhouse from New South Wales Dressage in Australia, and Tina Conyot, fresh from her winning streak at the U.S. Selection Trials. It's been a tremendous journey. It's so exciting. And actually, today was the first day I said, oh my God, we're going to the World Equestrian Games. This is Chris Stafford in Lexington, Kentucky, and you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show. And on the show this week, I'm going to be joined by two great guests, Tony Venhouse uh, from New South Wales Dressage. She is uh, very influential in the sport down under, and she's going to tell us uh, how the sport has developed in Australia. And Tina DeConyard is going to join us a little bit later on in the show when she uh, shares with us the excitement of having won all four competitions as part of the selection trials for the World Equestrian Games. So a fantastic uh, couple of weeks there for Tina Conyot and Collecto the Fifth as she makes her way onto the squad now for the World Equestrian Games. But we're going to begin this week with some news, of course, from the selection trials. The U.S. Equestrian Federation has named its shortlist and nominated entries for the Games, which begin, of course, on September 25th here in the Kentucky Horse Park. And on that team, it begins with um, Tina Conyot, age 48, from Palm City, Florida. She's going to be riding hers. And John Brielsen's 12-year-old Danish warm-blood stallion, Collecto V. Todd Fletcher's age 40, from Royal Palm Beach, Florida, riding the 14-year-old Danish warm-blood stallion, Otto, owned by Sherry Knoll Farms. Catherine Bates and Chandler, age 35, from Wellington, Florida, riding Jane Forbes Clark's 15-year-old Dutch gelding, Nartan. And Stefan Peters, age 45, from San Diego, California, riding the 12-year-old Dutch gelding, Ravel, owned by Four Winds Farm. They are the top four named for the squad. And the other part, the other members of that uh, squad will be Catherine Haddad, age 40, 46, of course. Catherine, well-known to us here on the Dressage Radio Show, often jumps in the co-host chair. Of course, she is based in Vector, Germany, and she rides her own 10-year-old Hanoverian gelding, Winamaro. Pierre Saint-Jacques, age 45, from Antony, Florida, riding his own 15-year-old Danish warm-blood gelding, Lucky Tiger. Sue Blinks, age 52, from Encinitas, California, riding the 12-year-old Dutch warm-blood gelding Robin Hood, owned by the Minnesota Group LLC. And finally, in that squad is Jan Abling, age 51. Jan is from Moorpark, California, and he's riding Anne Romney's and Amy Abling's 13-year-old Oldenburg mare, Rafalka. So that's the squad that have been named for the team. And uh, they will now prepare for final selection, which when they go back to Gladstone, New Jersey, at the beginning of September, before the uh, final four are shipped, five, five I believe, are shipped down to, uh, Kentucky, to the Kentucky Horse Park to prepare for the game. So the best of luck to all of them as they make this final journey. And we're delighted that Tina is going to be a guest a little bit later on in the show. And then uh, next week, we're going to be joined by Todd Fletrick. So uh, we'll hear from some of our team as uh, they... uh 
continue what is going to be obviously and a very exciting time for them over the next four weeks as the dressage radio show follows them on their journey to the world equestrian games and we also have another piece of news this week um, there's going to be a new ride for one of the u.s para equestrian um, riders jennifer baker she had to withdraw her horse on which she was originally selected for the shortlist uh, entry for the world equestrian games but apparently dual um, had to be withdrawn because of veterinary issues and he is, has been replaced per the USEF selection procedures with Cranach whose Cranach is owned by Akiko Yamazaki who of course is a steadfast supporter of the sport including uh, owning Ravel ridden by Stefan Peters and she has made her horse available to Jennifer Baker the 18 year old Dutch gelding has been showing successfully at the Grand Prix level with Yamazaki and with Shannon, uh, Shannon Peters, that is of course Stefan's wife over there in California so uh, a fantastic replacement there for Jennifer Baker uh, so that she can continue her journey here to the World Equestrian Games well there's the, just, just the two items of news this week on the Dressage Radio Show um, we're going to take a short break here to hear from uh, our sponsors and then we'll be back to hear from our first guest this week, uh, Tony Venhouse Equestrian Collections has become a favorite for many of our dressage listeners. They have a huge selection of products for every level of dressage rider. Whether you're looking for something for your horse, your barn, or yourself, you will find it all at Equestrian Collections. They have fantastic prices on the names you have come to love, like Rumpf, Ariat, Charles Owen, Daredal, Fitz, RSL, Carrots, and so many more. For the entire universe of equestrian shopping at your fingertips at a price you can afford, go to equestriancollections.com. That's equestriancollections.com. And don't forget to stop over and join their Facebook fan page. They have over 22,000 fans now over there and some great conversations and a lot of fun contests. Everything you, you want out of a fan page for a company like Equestrian Collections is over there. Just search for Equestrian Collections on Facebook. Well, our first guest this week, Tony Venhouse, is someone I've known for a while. She is a, 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 as the husband of Franz Venhouse, Venhaus, who was the CEO of uh, uh, Australian Equestrian Federation in uh, Sydney. And Tony has been very, very involved with the sport of dressage now for a number of years. She's the event director for the Sydney CDI Three Star event, which is, of course, Australia's premier dressage competition. And that's uh, been going on now for close to 20 years. She's also the event director for the Australian Dressage Championships, including the CDIW, the qualifier down there. And she's been the Honorary Secretary for Dressage New South Wales, the body responsible for the running of dressage in the state of New South Wales. And she's also, as if she has any spare time at all, she's also editor of the Centerline magazine, a newsletter, colour magazine, that goes out to their members down there in New South Wales. So I was delighted to be able to catch up with Tony and hear really how the sport is growing down there and what opportunities there are for young riders coming into the sport and for those a little bit further up the ladder who are trying to get a place on the team. So let's hear from Tony. Well, Tony, welcome to the Dressage Radio Show. It's great to have you on, calling you uh, all the way uh, from Sydney, which is which is your home, isn't it? Yes, it is. Thank you, Chris. Um, it's nice to be with you. It's great to have you on the show. And, I, you know, we talked about it for a while, Tony, because, you know, I've known your husband uh, 
France now for a number of years and, and, and of course, met you while you were traveling with him. But I hadn't realized until recent months just how involved you are in the sport of dressage in Australia. And as I said in your introduction, you know, you're in the event director for the CDI three star there in Sydney, which is Australia's premier event and event director for the championships, including the World Cup qualifier. You wear a lot of hats, secretary for um, Dressage New South Wales, and you also uh, edited the Centreline magazine, so you're a busy lady. Yes, I am, yes. <laughs> it's um, Most of the work I do is, is all voluntary-based, as is, you know, with a lot of people in Australia, all our events, well, the majority of our events are all run by volunteer committees. Um, I get paid a small um, fee for running the CDI three-star and our Australian Dressage Championships, but the rest of it is on a voluntary basis and a lot of people commit a lot of their time and a lot of their effort um, to the sport. So even though I do a lot, you know, I'm not alone. There are a lot of other people that, that do a similar amount of work and some may even do a little bit more and as well hold down a full-time job. But I certainly couldn't hold down a full-time job doing what I do now. Well, I know that um, dressage is something that's been growing in Australia for a number of years. You've had the occasionally, occasional good rider that's you know, really uh, come to the fore internationally, um, but the team is a little bit hard to, harder to put together, harder to get that kind of high-level exposure to the sport that you need without going to Europe, isn't it, uh, Tony? Well, it is. I mean, we have probably three to four CDIs in Australia, and they're spread are mainly between um, Victoria and New South Wales. We run two here in New South Wales and we have um, the Victorian Championships runs the CDIW and we have the Pacific League final. But other than, and Equitana, when Equitana um, happens every two years, they run a CDIW, sometimes it becomes the Pacific League final. But, you know, there's four opportunities for our riders to ride in front of international judges and get those um, sort of qualifying scores that they need. So the opportunities are pretty limited for our riders um, in Australia and the distances are great uh, for them. Um, you know, they've got to travel. I mean, they travel in other, other countries as well, but um, in other countries you perhaps have, well, in Europe, for instance, you've got access to a lot more CDIs than what we have here. So... It, um, it's difficult for our riders that, that want to remain in Australia to, to actually compete at that top level. Now, you got into the sport a number of years ago, didn't you? What, what persuaded you to get involved with the administration and, and help with the promotion of comp and organisation of competitions, Tony? Well, France was involved with um, in the admin side earlier than what I was. I, I was working full-time and when I finished work I started with getting sponsorship uh, for for, um, for dressage events and from then on I we both could see that the competitions were pretty much you know all very low-key there was no there was no sense of an event as such it was just basically a competition and we both wanted to develop that a little bit and put on more of a, a show and so we just started in a small way with state championships and then that developed and we went on and um, you know we're where we are now um, and 
I could see that a lot of, because they're, again, they're all volunteer committees, there are a lot of things that could be done a lot better had um, someone that um, had the time and the, I guess, the willingness to be able to, to develop it a little bit further, put in a little bit more effort. So things weren't terribly professional at the time and, and there's still a long way to go, but that's probably where I came in with just um, trying to use the skills that I had from, from work, um, my working background, and took that into the sport. Of course, one of the challenges you face in Australia, as we do here in the States, uh, it's a different system, of course, but the, it, it's the sheer size of the country, Tony. And So do you have areas throughout the country? I know you're in New South Wales, in, in Sydney, New South Wales, but looking at the whole of the country, do you have areas where they, they, there's a concentration of dressage activity? Well, yes, it would mainly, the, the, the main areas would be New South Wales and it's Sydney metropolitan area. Um, the Sydney um, area basin is, you know, a very large pool of riders and also then you go up into the Hunter Valley area that's also has a very strong sort of dressage population there and then you go down into Victoria, there's um, quite a strong dressage community down in Victoria and also it's mainly the eastern states, Queensland, you know, around the Brisbane type area and then the Sydney metropolitan come Hunter Valley and then Melbourne um, and the, the areas around Melbourne. That's probably where the, the big hubs of dressage are. But, you know, there are other little areas throughout the country, basically, um, that, that do have smaller clusters of, of riders but then they tend to be a bit more spread out so I guess Sydney Metro would be the big the big one. And over the time you've been involved with the sport which is what some 25 years or more Tony mm -hmm. what have you seen as, as the shift in the sport to make it more popular and how do you see that's come about? Well I think probably the turning point was the Olympic Games in Sydney it we, we did have quite a strong following, obviously, for eventing here in Australia, but then uh, it started to change a little bit and dressage we're seeing now is probably attracting more spectators, well, it is attracting more spectators than any of the other disciplines, which is really unusual in comparison to, say, jumping in Europe. And it's mainly the freestyle to music has brought in a lot of people, the Olympic Games, that sort of exposed dressage to the wider sort of audience that's created a bit of a, an interest for people that maybe weren't involved with um, equestrian sports before. And from then, I think it's sort of just developed and, you know, we're finding that the sport's certainly not... It, it was growing up until the Sydney Games and it hasn't stopped. It's um, still the dressage component for the, for the Equestrian Australia membership is still pretty high. I think it's about 40% of the participating horses are dressage um, wow. horses. So, okay, some of those do have cross-purposes and may compete in eventing as well as dressage, but it's still a very, very significant portion of the, um, the participating horses is, um, you know, dressage-related. So, And I think, you know, junior riders, young riders, that's becoming where years ago they were probably more interested in just belting around the bush 
and going over cross-country jumps, there's a bit of a swing and, and younger riders are starting to get a little bit more interested in riding dressage, which is really good. So that uh, turning point, and you, uh, as you said, was a sort of a springboard. Was was having the games there, and, and you know, it sort of fired up some interest in in the I sport. I think so. Do you, do I you, think so. Do you think then, Tony, that that also inspired people within the sport or within equestrian sport? Period. To to and do, and it developed a, a, a wider training base of trainers. Did that was that evident as well over time? I can't really say, but probably did. Um, I think that there was the since the games we've started, even though we don't have a lot of equestrian personalities or dressage personalities like they do in other countries, we do have a few riders that do have a following, and most of those riders are also trainers. Um, so they they're pretty active with giving clinics throughout the country, but access to trainers for the wider community is still fairly limited because of our distances and riders do struggle with finding regular trainers unless you live close to an area where you do have access to a lot of um, different uh, trainers. It, it is a bit of a problem for the regional areas but I guess we do have a lot of coaches on our books but... Um, I think one of the problems we've got, those coaches need access to, to higher level coaches as well because a lot of it, a lot of them don't actually get exposed to trainers that are a bit more experienced than what they are and I think that that's something that really should happen. Well, clinics are always valuable, aren't they? And I know you do have some European riders go down there to, uh, to offer clinics and, and give them exposure to, to, to a wider audience uh, to reach... Um, you know, to to raise the the bar. I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You know, just yes. getting that to filter down um, to a wider base. And so, do you do you see then that there are more clinics as such, and symposiums, and 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 basically dressage programs, incentives for youth and youth programs overall, Tony? What does that look like? Quite good. Um, I guess we we have in New South Wales we have a a government agency called the New South Wales Institute of Sport and they support all of our um, our top riders, I guess, which is our uh, elite squad, the New South Wales elite squad and uh, our talent and young rider squad. So we have a series of clinics that are put on probably, probably about six a year and they're made available to our squad riders and then on top of that, we have our national squads. I can't really speak about that side of it too much other than we do have the occasional trainer comes down and, and um, gives national squad clinics. We have quite a strong um, young rider community up in Queensland and Victoria as well as New South Wales and they're fairly active with putting on clinics and training opportunities and now um, very strong state-based championships for young riders and that's um, that's been really good. We now have a series of CDIYs throughout Australia which has given those young riders something to aim for. We may only have six to eight riders competing in those CDIYs but still it um, it's a start and it does give the other one something to aim for. But um, we probably could do more on 
providing more training clinics for riders, but um, it all comes back to people to do it and, um, you know, funding also to, to make that happen. Absolutely. Well, we know that you're producing some great writers. Some have been based in Europe for a while. Um, Hayley Beresford, of course, we had on the show here a few weeks ago. But Parbury, they've done really well in in Europe, um, building up to the Games. So do you have any other rising stars there that uh, we should uh, be ready to look out for, Tony? Well, hmm, um put me on the spot. <laughs> we probably have some young riders that, you know, if, if they get access to to some good horses, you know, they're, they're, we have a lot of really good riders, but putting the right the right combinations together, the good riders with the good horses is always a bit of a bit of a challenge. But we have a couple of young riders that, that you know, if, if they're given the right opportunities, they, they probably will develop in the future. You know, we have other riders that are always... Um, Rachel Fanner, people would know, she's represented Australia at Olympic Games in the past. She has a very good horse. She may get on the team for, for Kentucky. Um, and, you know, people like Rosie Ryan, but they're not, um, they're, they're riders that are fairly established and have been around for a while, but keep on producing good horses and are always up at the top. But if you're looking for people that that wouldn't be that well known. Um, there are a few. Um, Alexi Hellier is a girl, a young girl that's been doing well in CDIYs in, in Australia. Another girl from Queensland, Victoria Welch. Um, she's uh, doing well in small tour. And um, Robbie Soster, another New South Wales rider, uh, is doing really well. And, you know, if she's given the right opportunity, she could develop into... To, to, one of our riders of the future and we have a couple of girls in Europe that are over there training and, and riding Brianna Burgess as one. Well. She's been with Monica Tedorescu, I think she's with, for a number of years and she's a talented young rider that could do well in the future. So, I mean, there, there are some riders here, probably, you know, half a dozen. Um, I'm sure there are more that, um, that I can just think of off the top of my head that given the right opportunities, they could develop and and be riders of the future. Well, maybe we should have them on the show here, uh, Tony, and and help promote their their career and their uh, inspiration as they as they make a career in the in this sport. And you know, they're so that they have that disadvantage of being isolated in a large country and away from the centre of the action. So uh, I think we should have them on the show. Don't you? Yeah, that would yeah that would be good. Uh, Haley Beresford has started up a little. A uh, scheme where she's inviting two two riders to go and spend up to I don't know up to this two months or something with her, and um, because it, it's difficult for them to go away for long periods, a lot of them might have other commitments, and maybe at university or they may still be at school. But she's offered to have two people, like working pupils, there with her for a couple of months. So that's that's something that's um, I think really good good for our riders and she's already had two over there a girl from western australia i think and there's another one with her and one's about to come home and then she'll take another one on so i think that's really good for for, for the sport here and for, for the younger riders because we'll give them exposure to what actually happens on the other side of the world which is different to what what happens here in australia 
Yes, for sure. And of course, there's nothing like a good mentoring program like that. I think that's a wonderful incentive. Well, when yes, we catch yes. up with these riders, Tony, I think that's a great idea. And uh, I'm glad you brought it to our attention. We'll certainly follow up with that and get some of those riders here on the show. Well, yes, I, want to, yes. I want to thank you, Tony, so much for joining us this week. It's been great to catch up with you. Pleasure. Thank you. Great to hear about the sport down down under. And uh, and as I said, if you uh, if you want to come on the Dressage Radio Show to promote Australian dressage, then just drop me an email, Chris at horseradionetwork.com, and we'll be sure to include you. And I want to thank uh, Tony again for joining us, and uh, <clears throat> we wish you all the best with the World Equestrian Games coming up here shortly. Tony, I know your husband's going to be travelling over here um, as, in in his capacities. What is he, assistant chef to mission? Is that his job? Yes. Good for him. Well, look forward to catching up with him. Thanks again for joining us, Tony. Thank you, Chris. Well, our thanks again to Tony Venhouse. We will be following the Australian team, of course, as they make their way to the Kentucky Horse Park for the World Equestrian Games. I think it'll be a fascinating journey for them. Of course, a very long one. Not easy for them, having having to train mostly in Europe to make that squad and to... uh, Get the competition mileage they need against the best in the world. So we'll be following them with interest, of course. Well, we're going to take a short break here to hear from our friends over at Kentucky Performance Products. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Tina Conyot. Joint Armor from KPP provides your horse with the building blocks necessary to maintain healthy joints throughout his lifetime. Kentucky Performance Products Quality Assurance provides you with the confidence that you are purchasing a safe, high-quality product. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. Joint Armor is concentrated and affordable. One jar lasts a whole 75 days. Joint Armor helps maintain fluid motion and flexibility in your horse's joints. It also supports normal cartilage development and reduces joint deterioration. Learn more about Joint Armor from Kentucky Performance Products and all their other terrific products at KPP. USA.com. That's KPPUSA.com. Well, those of you who followed sport closely will know that the uh, selection trials at Gladstone, New Jersey rounded out this past weekend uh, two fantastic weekends of sport. Four competitions for uh, for the uh, World Cup uh, contenders, World, fi- uh, World Equestrian Games contenders, I should say. And uh, it was Tina Conyot who who stole the show there from start to finish and and winning her first national championship in a very impressive fashion, uh, leading leading all the way from start to finish. But her her performance was even more um, impressive that she uh, concluded her freestyle score with a freestyle score of 75.75. So it really was a fantastic uh, couple of weeks for Tina, who's just been preparing um, all year and even longer to make the squad here. So she successfully made it onto the team. And so we were delighted to be able to catch up with Tina. Let's hear what she has to say about uh, her recent weeks and, and, and all the excitement that goes with it. Well, Tina, welcome to the Dressage Radio Show and thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. And it's great to have you right after what has been an incredible two weeks for you. Congratulations on being the, the, a national champion, the USEF. Uh, that's your first Grand Prix championship win, national championship win. But just as important, and, and maybe a little bit more importantly too, you, you also have made it on to the World Equestrian Games nominated list, shortlist for, for the Games with Collecto the Fifth. Absolutely. It's been a tremendous journey. It's so exciting. And uh, actually, I haven't had a 
chance to really, it hasn't taken a hold of me yet. I've been walking around a little bit in the days <laughs> and uh, arriving yesterday. And actually today was the first day I said, oh my God, we're going to the World Equestrian Games. And yeah. honest to God, today's the first moment it really hit me. Well, it must be one of those things you sleep on it and you wake up and think it, it's really happened. It's really happened, and you know, I'll, I, I suppose I'll have a different feeling after it's passed, also, because every day is a new day, and uh, we're not there yet. You know, we are on the team, but you know, with animals and ourselves, we're all so fragile. Life's so fragile, so we take it one day at a time. But we're certainly looking forward to it and preparing for it. It's very exciting. Well, what an exciting partnership you have there with your 12-year-old Danish stallion, Collecto. Now, uh, we should tell everyone that you recorded a four-day average over the uh, four competitions there at, at Gladstone, New Jersey, for the selection trials of something like 73.320. I believe that's correct. I, I don't have that in front of me, but it was, uh, it was a very nice score. I was very, very pleased with it. You must have been, and then particularly with your freestyle score, 75.75. That must have been a wonderful feeling when you wrapped up, but not not just winning one competition, but winning all four, all the four that mattered. Absolutely, Chris. Every day is a wonderful feeling when you have a horse like that. But I think it was the the third competition of the Grand Prix when I realized that would probably most likely tie up a spot for me for the WAG, for the team. And that was my the most teary-eyed moment for me. Well, I know there were some emotions as, as it all became a, a reality for you. And tell us um, now, a few days after the competition, how your horse is. How has he taken it all? <laughs> He's very happy. He came off the trailer Monday afternoon, coming back from Gladstone. We had meetings on Monday morning, and... We were very anxious to get home because he loves his large double box with four windows, and he's very happy to be in there. So when he came off the trailer, he was shaking his head and and leading us into the stable, basically. And he's had a couple of days of holiday in the paddock, rolling around, and no work on Monday, no work uh, today. Just paddock work, he calls it, strolling around and rolling and grazing and I, I, I hope he loves it because he looks like a very happy boy enjoying himself doing that. I know many of the horses, or I should say mo- majority of them, uh, do not have that opportunity. As a matter of fact, none of my teammates um, do that with their horses. So, you know, to each his own. But my horse, I want him to be a horse and be happy, and he certainly is. And what? feeling quite fresh. I think I have a feeling he knows that he uh, has had a lot of success. He, he knows he's, he real, he's really special right now. Is he playing it up? It looks like it, I promise <laughs> you. You have to smile and laugh when you see him coming out of the stable. He's trying to, to bite and, you know, playing around and squealing. And sometimes you think you're walking a pig instead of a horse because he squeals like a little pig. So it's a, it's a very emotional feeling for me. We have a tremendous connection, the two of us. I love him so much. And it's mutual. Everybody can see that it's mutual. Well, tell us, going into this competition, Tina, you've been over to Europe. You, you were preparing, obviously, for this all year. How did he feel coming in? Did he tell you that he was spot on and that he could pull this off? You know what? I don't believe he was spot on, but in all fairness to the animals, both Todd and myself uh, returned from a tour in Europe. I had a little bit more strenuous tour because of the time span I was there. I was only a short period of five weeks arriving there and... Um, I would have been there six weeks, but I had some fluid uh, that had to be drawn out of my knee, so it, I had to postpone my trip a week. 
And once we arrived in Europe, six days later, we traveled, you know, 12 hours to Austria to a wonderful competition there where he was very, very good. And um, back home again, and then we prepared for Aachen, which was a tremendous experience. And then again, traveling back home, um, just, you know, when you think about the jet lag alone for the animals, the stress, it's not just being a great competition horse, but it's about having a horse that can handle the mental stress of all of it dealing with traveling and some of the horses do not travel so well and i'm so grateful and lucky and fortunate to have a horse that takes everything in stride it's all very easy for him and uh... we got back from aachen out of quarantine he was back into work from my farm to the day we arrived in gladstone it was six days which is a very very short period of time and uh... we competed the seventh day in the Grand Prix, and I would say the first weekend he felt a little bit tired for me. He never, ever says no. He never shuts down. He never tells me, I'm not doing this, Mom. But you can also feel, you know, when you have a connection with an animal and a bond with them, you know when they're just on top of everything. And I wasn't pushing him either because, I, you know, there was no reason to do that. I know he would perform for me, but he was not spot on at his best in peaking. Uh, we had a little break that week uh, we did not ride uh, we didn't ride monday tuesday wednesday was a very light ride on wednesday um, thursday we worked a little bit little bit more of a, of a normal day and then competed the grand prix on friday and the second weekend he felt quite good i, I must say i didn't feel him being tired either on friday for the grand prix or on sunday for the freestyle so I'm sure, you know, I mean, he also gives me an awful lot. Without asking for it, he wants to do the job for me, and he's a happy horse that way. And I believe that's very, very important for any of them to want to do the job properly and to be at their best. They need to be happy, as we do as people. Um, tell us, how did he manage the heat? Um, did that bother him at all? It was very hot and humid in Gladstone, wasn't it? The second weekend was better than the first weekend. Um, we were fortunate. We were able to... You know, to deal with the heat a little bit, we had a, a bit of break and overcast, and uh, the first weekend I, we competed in the morning. You know, it was we could deal with it, but we don't have control over these conditions, and this sport is not for the weak. You know, you're going to have rainstorms, you're going to have bad footing, you're going to have heat, you're going to have humidity, and that, I think, uh, you weed out those horses, the weaker horses that cannot handle that. Mine is a big, dark horse. Um, you know, used to the cold climate, I take extra precautions uh, for the heat. I do extra things for him to keep him on a on a comfort zone. I'm very very careful with that. We you know we have ice water you know as before we go in and make sure that he's cool and I don't do too much and there's lots of lots of extra precautions we take with that. But I don't think it's uh, comfortable for any of the horses, no matter if they deal with it well or they don't deal with it well. It's not a comfortable situation to be working in humidity as an athlete. Well, as you said, you have an established partnership with him. He is, he is a stallion. Now, what kind of personality does he have, Tina? <laughs> I think they're water balloons, Chris. I don't really <laughs> think he's a stallion. <laughs> I think he came from a wax museum. I, I actually <laughs> watched him today, and he was in the paddock, and I have a special little setup of a, a smaller barn for my old retired horses, which is a mare that's 28 years old and another gelding who's 19 and my little, my little girl donkey, Trixie. So they can all talk to each other over the fence and... 
you know, honest to God, he doesn't act like, uh, he's definitely not the normal stallion that way. I've had uh, very dominant stallions that I've trained and that I've worked with over the years, and he is not one of them. He traveled back from Aachen with Beezy Madden's mare, one of her jumping horses that she competed at Aachen. And, uh, you know, every so often he'd say hello to her, and he'd go back to eating his hay. So it's a very unusual stallion, very unusual. How would you characterize his personality? He didn't have one when I got him four years ago, when I first when he first came into my life. And now it's a horse, um, he has lots of personality. If he likes someone, once he gets to know, uh, like with, even with my groom, you know, he's got, he got a little bit careful sometimes. If he's not sure of a, a new person coming around him, he's a little bit quieter. Once he knows you, he's, you know, pulling on you and, you know, trying to, to take things out of your hand, out of your pocket. He hugs me and grabs a hold of the back of my pants and won't let me go. <laughs> and honest, honestly, you have to laugh when you see it. It's uh, very amusing. So when he sees Julio, his groom, then he grabs a hold of him and holds him also. And, you know, he's very playful. He has lots of toys and stuffed toys and balls, and he throws them out of the window. And now he has personality. He's, he's developed into someone special. How did you find him? I found him in the north of of Denmark, and it was a gentleman that I had known for some years, uh, John Brielsen, who said to me for many years from when I met the man, he breeds an awful lot of horses. I believe he has something like 800 horses, and he had said to me over the years, Tina, you must come to Denmark and, you know, look at our horses and, you know, you should ride one of my horses and look at these horses and blah, blah, blah. It went on for some years. And then finally in the last uh, top horse I had was in 2004. That was Anna Karinina. And after that, uh, 05, I didn't really have anything coming up and, you know, no sponsorship behind me, no horses coming up in my hands. And some friends of mine, uh, I don't know how it all came together. It was a matter of a, a girlfriend of mine, actually. She said, Tina, why don't we go over to Denmark and take a look? There's an auction coming up, and we ended up going over there four years ago. And uh, nobody wanted him. It was uh, no one bid on him in the auction, which was rather interesting and great for me anyway. And I don't think any, you know, he was a lovely horse, a little bit of a weak stallion, uh, not much of a trot, a very nice walk, a pretty canter. And um, that's how we ended up with him. I had a couple of friends of mine, non-horse people, that helped me. It was not an expensive horse, but they helped me to put it together that I could purchase the animal. And uh, that's how it all started. So it's great, a huge satisfaction to know that um, I developed this horse. I made him into something special, and I think many people do think he's special. I wasn't even sure in the beginning, Chris, actually. I wasn't quite sure what I got myself into, if I could really pull it off. And I was looking to make a Grand Prix horse. I wasn't looking for a small tour horse or a sales horse. I was looking for something for myself that I could create. And uh, it happened. It, abso it absolutely happened, and I'm so grateful for that. What makes what what do you think made your partnership with him bond the way that it has, Tina? What do you think the the key to? Uh, I have a partnership with all my horses, Chris. Um, I don't think that it was a horse that had a great life. I don't think he had. You know, he was a number in a in a big facility with lots of lots of lots of horses. 
he was uh, sold as a younger horse to a, a woman in Finland. A girl from Finland was riding him. I believe he was just a number and uh, definitely had some talent to him, lots of elasticity, and, you know, he didn't act like a stallion at all. He really was such a, a quiet horse. It was unusual. So I don't think that it's just about his relationship with me. Uh, I believe that I know that I have a relationship with all my horses, as I have some of my old horses, one I've had for 25 years, one I've had for, oh, Lord, I've had for 15 years. I mean, they're in my life. And I treat them like very good friends of mine. I, I cherish having them and owning them and taking care of them. They do so much for us. And, and stallions in general, I believe, bond to people. I've had other stallions in my life that were very, very close to me, close in my life. Well, now you're coming to a, um, a particular milestone in your partnership and uh, with him and in your career. So how does this look for the next few weeks leading up to WEG? Um, Tina, you're back home now in Connecticut. Uh, what, what's the schedule now for the next few weeks? We have a couple of weeks of downtime at the moment. Uh, the horses, uh, they have a well-earned uh, rest that they, they certainly worked hard. All the horses worked very hard this week. Um, I will pick him up over the next days very slowly just in a lot of basic elastic work that I do with him I don't believe that we need to retrain our horses or you know they know they know all the all, all the movements of the Grand Prix I think it's very important to uh, stick to your basic work and incorporate your lessons from there so we'll slowly pick it up this week we have to return back to Gladstone all of us that are team members on the 4th of September I believe Stefan is arriving on the 3rd and um, I believe Catherine and Todd will also arrive on the 4th. So we'll all gather together as a team, uh, including Catherine Haddad, on the 4th of September. And we will remain there in training together and, you know, forming our partnership together, which, thank God, we're all very good friends and very fond of each other. And we leave for Kentucky um, on the 18th of September. The horses will ship to Kentucky. So what excites you the most about this turning point now and the journey that you're heading, uh, that, that you have in front of you, Tina? What excites me the most? Is that what you said? Yes. I think every day is quite exciting. I'm not, I, I'm not that, you know, I don't, I'm not a person who gets so excited. I'm very low-key with all of it, and I can take the pressure and the stress, and, you know, we look forward to it. I don't look at it at at the situation as excitement. I certainly don't want that to happen where you would change your everyday life with your animal. It's very important to keep an even keel with everything. Um, I'm, I'm just terribly looking forward to all of it. That's Once we're there, ask me another question. Once, <laughs> once we're on the, on the ground and everything's happening and uh, we get the Grand Prix behind us as a team, then I think you could ask me, Tina, was that exciting? And then I might probably will yell, you know, into your telephone there to, <laughs> to hear the excitement. But at the moment, um, you know, it's a day-by-day -day routine. Absolutely. Well, as you say, taking one step at a time on the rest of your journey to the World Equestrian Games. Well, we want to wish you the very best of luck, Tina, with that. Thank and you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to speak to you. And we will look forward to catching up with you when you get here to uh, the Kentucky Horse Park. And hopefully you'll come and join us on the show again whilst you're here. Absolutely a pleasure. All the best. Thank you, Tina.
Well, our thanks again to Tina for joining us this week and, and the very best of luck to her and all of them as they make their way um, onto that squad and to prepare for the, what's going to be a very, very exciting competition here. The best dressage in the world is going to take place here in the Kentucky Horse Park. And that will happen on September 27th, 28th, 29th and October 1st. That's when the dressage competition will be held as part of the World Equestrian Games, which itself begins on September 25th. And I want to remind you all that we will be there and uh, I will be recording the shows to a live audience each day in the Kentucky Horse Park. We will be on stage in the Altec Pavilion, the Altec Experience Pavilion, which will be uh, just, a, just a short walk from the main stadium there. So if you come to the horse park, come over and say hello. We look forward to uh, meeting our listeners. We always love to hear uh, hear from our listeners. So come and say hello if you're going to coming to the World Equestrian Games. You will find me there recording all three of the shows that I host. That is the Jumping Radio Show, the Dressage Radio Show, and of course the Eventing Radio Show. And we will be following the action and bringing you daily coverage there on on each of the shows and on their respective sports. So that about wraps it up for this week. I want to thank our guests, uh, Tina Conyet and Tony Venhouse from Down Under. And also uh, want to remind you that Todd Fletcher will be our guest on next week's show. As always, you can join me um, on Facebook if you want to follow the fan page there. And, of course, our show notes are always at dressageradio.com. And if you're a tweeter, you can follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio and Chris E. Stafford. You can also contact me with any comments, questions or suggestions. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email, chris at horseradionetwork.com. And our voicemail number, of course, as always, 270-803-0025. I'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, as always, for supporting the show and encourage you to support them in the way they support us and make these shows possible. And, of course, our backstage crew that turn the shows out for us every week. And don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network. We now have, what, eight shows between us. and So there is something for everyone here on the Horse Radio Network. Well, that's about it for this week. I'm going to be joined by Mary Lawrence, and she's going to have a guest next week here on the show. And and as I said, uh, Todd Fletcher will also be a guest. So looking forward to that next week. But in the meantime, uh, uh, be be careful out there, and and, uh, don't forget to join us here, same place, same time next week. Until then, thanks to all of you around the world for listening, and don't forget to practice safe riding by always wearing your helmet, fastening your chin strap, and keep smiling. (laughs) 